Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Dog Pod, where we discuss all things related to canine health, research, how Good Dog helps breeders run their breeding programs, and so much more. I'm Dr. Nate Ritter, the staff veterinarian here at Good Dog, and your host for this week's episode. I'm really excited to introduce the topic of today's podcast, epilepsy and canine cognitive dysfunction, and what Purina has done regarding management of these conditions via diet. I'm joined this week by Dr. Lawrence Stump a now recurring guest here at Good Dog who actually presented on this very topic just a few weeks ago with one of our webinars. For those that missed the webinar, Dr. Lauren Stump is a Louisiana native, earned both her bachelor's in animal science and doctor of veterinary medicine at Louisiana State University. She joined Nestle Purina Pet Care in 2019 as a veterinary communications manager and enjoys sharing canine and feline nutrition information with veterinary practitioners and veterinary teaching hospitals and students across the country. Prior to joining Purina, Dr. Stump worked in federal government relations for the American Veterinary Medical Association in Washington, D.C., helping shape federal laws and regulations surrounding animal health and public health. She also worked in small animal general practice in Northern Virginia and as a Congressional Science Fellow for a U.S. Senator, and she remains active in public policy related to animal health today. In her spare time, you'll find her being in the great outdoors, traveling, and generally attempting to live life to the fullest. Dr. Stump, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me back again. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So I thought we'd start with just kind of an overview of the two conditions, starting with epilepsy, if you could for us, just summarizing what it's meant when a dog is diagnosed with epilepsy. Yeah. So to kind of start from the beginning, today we're going to be talking about epilepsy and then also canine cognitive dysfunction. And we'll kind of tie in at the end why we're combining these two into one topic. But epilepsy, you'll focus on first and foremost, it's a chronic neurological condition. It's typically characterized as two or more, in medical terminology, unprovoked epileptic seizures that occur at least 24 hours apart. So To kind of break that down, seizures are caused by what we can think of as an electrical storm of activity that happens in the brain. So the cells of the brain or neurons will use electrical and chemical signals to interact and communicate with one another. And those signals can be excitatory or they can be inhibitory when we're talking about neurons. And if the balance of those shift way too far towards excitation, towards that excitatory side, that's when we start to see seizure activity. Now, you're not necessarily going to see that in your normal healthy dog, but we do see that in dogs with epilepsy. Typically, epilepsy is pretty unpredictable. For a lot of epileptics, there's not really a pattern to their seizures. Some dogs will have them regularly. Others can have them precipitated by certain events like stress or changes in the weather. And we know some are precipitated, say, by thunderstorms, those types of things. But for some dogs, it's really no pattern to it. And so to kind of think about, you know, a little bit more of what that means, What we're talking about today is something called idiopathic epilepsy, which is also a synonym for something 
that we call primary epilepsy encompasses what we know to be genetic epilepsy or cases where we think epilepsy might be genetic or might be inherited. So we call it presumed genetic epilepsy. All of that kind of falls into this category. And it really means that these are causes and cases of epilepsy where the cause is not something that we can readily identify like a metabolic cause or potentially toxin ingestion or a structural lesion or issue within the brain, like a brain tumor or something like that. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we discuss idiopathic epilepsy. And I know we're going to go into a little bit about how we figure out if a patient has a different type of epilepsy and how we kind of break down into idiopathic epilepsy. Just to kind of touch on canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome briefly, that is a chronic neurodegenerative condition of the brain. It's actually most similar thing that I can think of in human medicine in our human population would be Alzheimer's disease. So it goes beyond normal pet brain aging into a chronic degenerative neurological disease with some accompanying symptoms. But that's kind of an overview of the two things that we're talking about today. Oh, fantastic. Appreciate that. And I think a great point towards the tail end of your description of epilepsy, that unprovoked aspect or nature, you know, seizures can be caused by a lot of different things, but we're talking particularly about when we're unknown cause here. So with that being said, with out a cause, it's kind of difficult to diagnose these in patients. How might you go about figuring out if, a, if an animal does have epilepsy? Yeah, it can be tough. I mean, kind of speaking with my general practitioner hat on here and having spent time as a general practitioner in private practice, I think one of your main things when you're looking at a dog as a veterinarian that's presenting to you that has had maybe one seizure or has had their second seizure, first you want to try to rule out other potential causes. And so you'll look at the dog from an overall holistic perspective. First, you know, how old is that dog? If I'm seeing a seizure in a very young animal, less than a year old or, you know, older than 10 years old, I'm going to have wildly different top lists of what might be affecting that patient. For some dogs, there'll be things like metabolic causes, you know, in an older animal that's experiencing liver failure, that can sometimes cause seizures. So those will be examples of things that we're potentially trying to rule out, essentially. What we know with idiopathic epilepsy is that that's really the diagnosis that we're left with when we've crossed everything else off, off the list. So we call it a diagnosis of exclusion in our kind of wonky medical terminology, of course. But we have to differentiate this primary or idiopathic epilepsy from something like a structural epilepsy or reactive seizures. And we start with that general dog and that whole picture of, you know, who is this animal in front of me? How old are they? What's their history? We look at their physiological and neurological examination findings. So performing that thorough physical exam, a neurological exam, and then we'll run baseline laboratory work. So that'll be a complete blood count, chemistry, urinalysis. And from there, you kind of get pointers that start to put you in different directions. There are other conditions that can look like seizures, aren't necessarily seizures, though. So certain vascular conditions, conditions like syncope potentially can actually look like seizures, but may not actually be a true seizure. So it's important if I have anybody who's calling me as a vet and saying, I think my dog is having seizures, I say, get a video if you can, if it's still happening, as safely as you can as you're getting the animal to the veterinary clinic, of course. But try to get some imagery of it and be really able to kind of contextualize when is it happening, how is it happening, what does it look like, to make sure that it's not necessarily something that's not truly a seizure. 
But from there, to differentiate, once we are certain that it's a seizure, to differentiate an idiopathic or primary seizure from potential other causes, we've got to dig into, is there something going on metabolically? So we might run a bile acids assay to test the liver function, test for potential infectious causes like fungal infections. Really, the only way that we have to test for inflammatory or infectious diseases that are within that central nervous system, we can't really pick those up on a standard blood draw because of kind of an anatomical structure called the blood-brain barrier, but we do pick those up. If it is warranted, we can do a spinal tap and actually look for those. Really, the only way to look for a brain tumor is to do something like an MRI or a CT scan to actually see inside the skull and what might be happening there. But there certainly are things like a spinal tap and MRI, those more advanced diagnostic techniques where if we're really kind of pointing down that direction, I mean, each veterinarian is going to assess the patient in front of them and all the contacts that they have. Those types of tests may or may not be warranted in various certain situations. But eventually, once you've crossed everything off the list that it could be, and you have your clinical history, you have what we call the signalment. So that's that patient's age, also patient's breed taken into consideration at times. Then we can be confident in the diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. Great. And yeah, really important points there. I think particularly the video is helpful, obviously, lot's going on. It's not something you're going to immediately think to right. do, but important right. to keep in mind that history that you talked about, logging things. If you have a notebook, I think that's particularly helpful relating to different episodes, giving Absolutely. yourself and the clinician a full picture before moving forward with these diagnostics. And then, like you mentioned, once we've kind of exhausted those options and we come down to the probable diagnosis, how is this condition treated and can it be cured? We have a lot of people that always ask that as well. Right, right. So unfortunately, this is one of those conditions where I say it's lifelong. So once we know that a dog has epilepsy, then it's going to require some type of treatment and management to control those seizures for the rest of its life. And I think this is where we start to kind of run into as seizures potentially get worse, start to progress throughout an animal's life, or we start to run into kind of more of those quality of life issues that are so important to owners where they see that dog's life, their pet's life affected, and they potentially see their own life affected as well. So it can't be cured. It does require lifelong treatment. So typically, once a veterinarian diagnoses that dog with epilepsy, at one point in time or another, usually pretty early on, it depends on the individual patient, of course, but you'll want to start some type of seizure control. And those are generally going to be anti-epileptic drugs. So those are medications that usually have to be dosed about twice a day, some of them more, but we usually start with one drug. And then the kind of protocol is you start with as low as you think you can go and you kind of titrate up from there. A lot of times we see that we have to add on with dogs, particularly if they've had seizures for any kind of longer period of time, we start having to add on multiple drugs to help. And so that's kind of where we get into that multiple drug therapy, which unfortunately is where we see a lot of times the side effects from drugs can potentially start to ramp up and to overlap. So some of these drugs, you know, we might see side effects that include things like lethargy, like ataxia, you know, when I have been in practice, most of the time in my patients, what I kind of describe it more as a general apathy. They're just not as interested in the things that used to be fun in life anymore. So I think those are the downsides potentially to anti-epileptic drugs. So we try to keep the doses as 
low as we can and still achieve control of those seizures. And control doesn't necessarily mean that the dog is never going to have a seizure. Actually, kind of a realistic expectation is that that might decrease, its severity might decrease by about 50%. But we try to essentially find the right combination and the right dosing so that we have the best quality of life possible for that patient, which really means just keeping those seizures as low as we can. Yeah, absolutely. With limited side effects. Right. Yeah. And those side effects can impact a lot of different things in the body. These medications, the monitoring that goes on, your annual exams past that point, those may change in terms of the different things that you're doing with your particular pet. And yeah, quality of life is such an important thing yeah. to think about here. I mean, management, mm -hmm. it's to where we feel it's appropriate for that animal, but may not always be the case. All right, everyone, you are listening to the Good Dog Pod. We'll be right back. Education is at the core of our mission here at Good Dog, and we're always finding new ways to provide the latest and greatest in canine health and research to our community of good breeders. We're excited to offer members of our community free and exclusive access to Good Dog courses, a series of online educational courses that include in-depth videos, checklists, breeding tools, and more. You can receive exclusive access to Your Litter A to Z, which helps prepare and guide you all the way through whelping, raising, and sending your puppies home. Breeding Foundations, which includes eight courses that have been hand-selected by our team to help get you ready to breed and start a successful breeding program. Savvy Socialization. This class discusses new ways to think about socialization of puppies and how to approve upon current recommendations and so much more. You can even earn up to nine certificates of completion for all the courses we offer and proudly display them to show off your breeding knowledge. Again, this is completely free for members of our community and you can access these courses by visiting gooddog.com slash goodbreedercenter slash courses. If you aren't yet a member of our community and would like free access to all of this educational content and so much more, we invite you to apply to join at gooddog.com slash join. Well, I know you touched on canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome before and said, you know, this is something that we would consider abnormal outside of the normal aging of an animal. How common is this condition and what are some of the potential risk factors? So I think it's a lot more common than we normally would think that it would be, particularly as you start getting into your older patient population. So we're looking at cognitive dysfunction syndrome. It's really more of a, it's a severe irreversible degeneration of the brain. It's characterized by progressive impairment in that dog's ability to think and to act beyond what would you expect with normal aging. It can have a very slow onset, so it can be tricky in actually trying to pick up and to diagnose, particularly once a dog is already showing signs, because it happens so slowly in the day-to-day -day household, you don't necessarily notice that it's happening. So overall, it's estimated that about 14% of dogs that are eight years of age or older have cognitive dysfunction syndrome. But when you look into a numbers breakdown of that, it gets a little bit more interesting. So what we find is that it really in dogs that are, say, eight to 10 years old, it's really only about, say, three to four percent on average, we think is kind of the prevalence in our canine population. But when you start looking at, say, dogs 10 to 12 years old, might be about 5%. You look at dogs between 12 and 14 years old, you're actually looking at rates that are very close to 25%. And over 14 years old, rates over 40%. So you can see as that dog ages, it's much more likely that it's going to have this more extreme level of cognitive decline. And we do have a methodology for diagnosing it. 
we do have some treatment options. Um, so treatment's going to include things that are as simple as environmental enrichment, certain drugs, nutraceuticals. And the way that we diagnose cognitive dysfunction is through a system called a DISHA assessment. So to kind of walk through what some of those clinical signs, as we call symptoms, are going to look like and how we might diagnose this, we kind of categorize it as DISHA being an acronym that stands for disorientation, social interactions, change in sleep-wake cycles, house-soiling, learning and memory, and then activity and anxiety. So I think some of the most common things that we'll see and that we'll hear from people is that they've started house-soiling. It's like they've forgotten that they're supposed to go outside to do their business. It might be difficult to get the dog's attention. In terms of activity, they might have a decrease in activity or exploration or a desire to play with toys or with other pets. They might also wander around or pace or potentially even get stuck in corners sometimes. I know that's one that I've seen before. Anxiety has a high tendency to increase, especially when they're separated from their owners or if there's been, say, a noise phobia in the past, that often increases. We also see things that are really similar to sundowner syndrome. So pacing and restlessness at night and vocalization at night as well irritability and kind of just that disoriented, getting lost, less reactive to visual signals, those types of things. Now you can imagine in an older dog and having been the pet parent of many older dogs myself, you know, of course, there are two things that you have to make sure that you're not confusing this for. And so loss of hearing and loss of vision that naturally occur with age, of course, we're talking about getting lost or looking at a wall, you know, it's important to not confuse those two. And then there are also other medical conditions that could result in a presentation that can have some of similar or even sometimes the same clinical signs as cognitive dysfunction syndrome. So again, it's really that whole clinical picture. I think once you've learned how to identify cognitive decline and cognitive dysfunction, it can be one thing that you actually can pick up on pretty early. So when I was in practice, I would start screening my patients, even when they are around the age of seven or so, really more so to set kind of that baseline for how they normally act so that we can detect it really early later on and potentially intervene in that. So I think it's a little bit more common than we would typically think of. And a lot of times we'll be pretty willing to say something as normal age-related decline when it actually might be something where there could be an intervention that's warranted. Absolutely. And so, yeah, something to obviously keep an eye out at home if you have particularly an older animal thinking of if there are any changes in, in how they're going about their day-to-day. -day. I know you touched on it in terms of in, similarly in epilepsy, but, you know, can this condition be cured? And I know you touched on some of the treatments and how does that help these guys that may be impacted by this syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in about these cases, it's really less than probably 2% of these dogs that are actually diagnosed. And again, I'll say there's a caveat that you can't really cure this progressive irreversible cognitive decline. You can absolutely control for a lot of the symptoms that you'll see with it. And because of nutrition, we can actually turn around some of those things that we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. So it can't be cured. It can absolutely be treated. One thing that I didn't mention before that I think is just important to mention anytime we're talking about a lot of these different types of medications, you know, particularly for medications associated with epilepsy, it's really important 
particularly for epileptics, to never stop or decrease a medication that an epileptic dog might be on without consultation and direction from a veterinarian. Because some of these drugs that have effects on the brain and the brain chemistry, it can be really detrimental and sometimes life-threatening to stop those abruptly or even to decrease those or make any changes. So I just want to make sure that I make that point before we get sidetracked on some other topics here for all the listeners there. But I think there's a lot that we can do interventionally with cognitive dysfunction, nutrition, with nutraceuticals, with other medications that can definitely make a big impact on their lives and can make an impact on the lives of dogs with epilepsy as well. Absolutely. And so before we go into particularly the reason, obviously, for the pod today, talking about kind of nutritional management of these two conditions, Mm -hmm. before we start talking about that, how do these two conditions impact the brain? And obviously, we'll, we'll tie that into how the nutritional management may assist in these cases. Yeah. So epilepsy is one of those things that it starts in, there's a number of different ways that we can kind of categorize epilepsy and how epilepsy comes to be and how it's potentially further impacts the brain. I think one important thing to note about epilepsy is that, you know, whether it's something that could have a genetic tie to it or potentially truly is really of unknown cause, no suspected genetic background. Generally speaking, we say the brain is kind of separated into two hemispheres. So you can have certain types of seizures would be more generalized across both hemispheres of the brain. You can also have what we call focal seizures that are really more circumscript in one specific area of the brain. There's other different types of seizures kind of within that, but without kind of going into those overall categories, Typically with the seizure, we'll see, you know, three phases. We'll see that pre-seizure phase where we call the aura, where the dog might seem anxious or seek attention from their owner. We'll see the seizure itself, which is generally pretty short. And then we'll see within, say, 30 seconds might be that actual kind of tonic phase where their consciousness is impaired less than two minutes, I think, certainly for that actual seizure activity period. And then post-ictally, That's what we call the period where they might be disoriented, thirsty, restless. That might last a few hours or so after the seizure. I know one thing about seizures is that over time, the more the seizures that we start to see in an animal, if they have maybe one seizure focus that we can actually pick up on different types of brain scans, there's this effect called kindling where they can actually start to develop bigger or more seizure foci in that brain. So that's kind of how seizures can be a bit progressive over time. But one way that we see that seizures are either impacting the brain or that metabolism of the cells of the brain potentially are impacting seizure activity is that on certain types of PET scans, we're able to see that there are actually areas in those seizure areas that the seizures essentially come from. They'll actually have a decrease in the metabolism of glucose. So the brain is a huge, it's a very busy organ. It's a very active organ. It uses a lot of the energy that the body takes in. So it uses a lot of those calories and basically every type of calorie that the body takes in, in some way, shape or form, it's going to turn it into glucose and turn it into some other things like ketone bodies. We'll talk about those too. But generally the preferred type of energy for most cells, not all cells, but most cells in the body is going to be glucose. And the brain is a huge utilizer of glucose that's taken in through food throughout just every daily process, general life. 
And what we see is that these areas of seizure activity, generally they're not taking up as much glucose. So we call that areas of glucose hypometabolism, which is interesting from a scientific perspective. To kind of bridge over and talk about canine cognitive dysfunction as well, we also see interestingly that over time and with age, and this is not similar to those seizure foci, but generally speaking, an aging dog's brain and a dog with cognitive dysfunction syndrome specifically, their brain will lose the ability to take up that glucose and to turn it into energy. So they become very inefficient utilizers of glucose. I like to think of it that, you know, the glucose is there in front of the cell, but the cell has a blindfold on and they can't see it to be able to grab it and bring it inside the cell and make energy out of it. So we see that there's essentially less energy being delivered to the brain because they're unable to see that energy source that is glucose. Yeah. So speaking of energy, I mean, talk to us about what Purina has done in this space relating to these two conditions. I know there's a product NeuroCare mm -hmm. to help manage these conditions via diet. It's, it's very interesting. I don't think a lot of people would think with these two conditions that the diet can make an impact, but tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Purina within our ProPlan veterinary diets side of the business, we created a diet called NeuroCare. And NeuroCare, the two things that you would really use it for as a veterinary practitioner are for patients that either have idiopathic epilepsy or that have canine cognitive dysfunction. So that's kind of why we talk about these same two conditions together. And it's a diet that can serve a lot of different functions, works in a really kind of cool and unique way. I think a really kind of envelope pushing science went into developing this diet and figuring out exactly how we can potentially modify both of these conditions with nutrition. I will say it's certainly advocated and intended as an adjunct therapy to idiopathic epilepsy. It's not something that you'll typically go out and use as a sole therapy, but can be immensely beneficial in dogs with epilepsy to decrease some of that seizure day frequency and decrease some of the actual seizure frequency and severity itself. And then also can be really beneficial for dogs with canine cognitive dysfunction. So what we've actually done with the diet NeuroCare, and so this is safer, it's approved for maintenance of adult dogs. It also includes growth of large breed dogs. So your large breed puppies can eat this as well. As we put in that diet, a pretty high proportion of the fat, the normal fat that's in that diet comes from medium chain triglycerides. So when we're thinking about fat sources in a diet and fat being an essential nutrient, normally in any type of kind of food item or dog food, what you're going to see is that those fat sources are coming from long chain triglycerides. So that would be things like beef fat, like chicken fat, but medium chain triglycerides are actually, it sounds just like it is. So a long chain triglyceride literally has a longer carbon tail on that fat molecule. Medium chain triglyceride is a little bit shorter. Those typically come from certain plant sources like coconut oil, like palm oil. And what's interesting about medium chain triglycerides is that for instance, in cognitive dysfunction syndrome, that brain loses the ability to be able to see the glucose that's around it. But those cells in the brain, they can utilize not just glucose, but they can also utilize those medium chain triglycerides as energy sources. And I think because of popular culture now, a lot of us are more familiar with ketones and with ketosis and those types of things. NeuroCare is not a traditional ketogenic diet by any means. A traditional ketogenic diet is very low in protein, very, very high in fat, low in carbohydrate as well. 
This is certainly still a complete and balanced diet, so you don't have the issues potentially with palatability, with diarrhea, with micronutrient deficiencies that you're going to see with a typical kind of traditional ketogenic diet. But medium chain triglycerides are more likely to lead to ketone production than a long chain triglyceride. So when the body takes in a higher amount of medium chain triglycerides, you're going to get actually the ability for the brain to can still see those and can still take those in as energy, can also take in and utilize the ketones that are made from those MCTs as energy. So in canine cognitive dysfunction, what we've seen with these dogs and how I think of it is, is that you're actually taking a brain that's kind of starving because of lack of energy and you're feeding it again. So you can see some pretty drastic night and day turnarounds in patients that were, you know, pretty severely affected with canine cognitive dysfunction into being much more like a normal, happy, healthy aging dog. Similarly, when we think back to ketogenic diets and medium chain triglycerides and seizure patients, they're actually in history There have been trials and use of traditional, very, very high fat, very low protein, very low carbohydrate ketogenic diets, particularly used in children that had really refractory seizures. And they do show some efficacy, but they're very long-term, very, very difficult to maintain, of course, because it's very hard to maintain a diet where you're taking in that much fat, particularly when you start thinking about the nutrient deficiencies that could result from that. But you can see some success with that. And so we actually took that theory and then thought about, you know, this traditional ketogenic diet is not something that's, you know, safe or maintainable long term for dogs that have idiopathic epilepsy. But could we leverage medium chain triglycerides to potentially get some of those effects of ketone bodies and MCTs to potentially get the benefits? And further, you know, let's dig into well, what are the benefits there? We're talking about that brain energy metabolism. We know that that brain glucose metabolism is disrupted in patients that have epilepsy, essentially. There's also an interesting way that certain MCTs that can actually affect the seizure, excitation, and inhibition pathways themselves. So we think about that scale skewing a little bit too far towards excitation, potentially leading to a seizure that we talked about before. And so these are basically those neurotransmitters in the brain getting too excitatory and you'll get potentially seizure activity. So there's another way to think about that too. And it's if you think about an automatic transmission car, that is essentially kind of putting your foot on the gas pedal. So you've got your foot on the gas pedal, you're getting that excitatory neurotransmission, and it's leading to seizures. And I must preface this with saying I am certainly a general practitioner here with this explanation. I am not a neurologist who would certainly have a much better explanation for this than I do. But you've got your foot on that gas pedal, okay? And so that's potentially leading to seizures, What we do with most of our anti-epileptic drugs, the way that they work is by that inhibitory pathway, by actually putting the foot on the brake pedal. The issues that can happen with that is that they can be very effective and are essential in controlling epilepsy. However, you've got your foot on the gas pedal and your foot on the brake pedal at the same time. So you're hoping that brake pedal kind of overrides the effect of having the foot on the gas pedal. What's interesting about medium chain triglycerides, in particular, I'll mention one called decanoic acid that's been shown in, proven out in studies to do this, is that it actually works directly by 
essentially taking the foot off the gas pedal, even just a little bit. So it actually kind of stops some of that excitation pathway from happening, which of course is going to make your inhibition through your anti-epileptic drugs potentially that much more effective. So those are two ways that medium chain triglycerides and ketone bodies can actually have really positive effects in the brain for dogs with epilepsy and why we'll use it and advocate it as an adjunct to those other medical therapies potentially. Now, NeuroCare is a diet that both of these conditions certainly require the oversight of a veterinarian. So these are some things that, you know, you'll need to have that diagnosis and that recommendation from your veterinarian to be able to purchase these diets, to be able to feed them to their pets. But essentially, this is a diet that's formulated with much higher levels of MCTs, uh, those medium chain triglycerides that we've proven out in clinical studies to be effective for both helping to manage as an adjunct to therapy, idiopathic epilepsy, and also improvements in canine cognitive dysfunction. Great. Very, very interesting. I think it's a great point at the end. I was going to ask just to clarify, obviously, if your dogs suffer from either of these conditions, something to talk about with your veterinarian. But so prescription required, not required. I know you talked about some other indications outside of just these two conditions. It's a completely balanced diet. So there might be other indications outside of these where it may be helpful. Yeah, it is a prescription only diet and for use under the direction of a veterinarian for sure. It is though, we want to make sure that we're providing that patient with complete and balanced nutrition no matter what. And considering too, in idiopathic epilepsy, sometimes we're diagnosing these dogs well before one year of age. We know in a lot of large breed dogs, giant breed dogs, you know, we might want to be feeding that dog something that's appropriate for growth for two to sometimes even three years on some of these very, very large breed dogs. So we wanted to make sure that we are formulating this diet in a way that it was going to be safe for not just those adult dogs, knowing that they might be on it for their entire lives, but for those growing large breed or small breed puppies as well. Oh, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Thank you so much. That's what we've got for today. Thank you for taking the time, everyone, to tune into this week's episode. We'd also like to thank, obviously, Dr. Stump and Purina for your time and willingness to educate our community on these topics, not just on this podcast, but the webinar. Please check that out if you haven't already. We hope this information was helpful. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you back here for our next episode. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.